Diversity, it might be what's holding your team back and you may not know it yet and may not know how to solve it. For that reason, I'm really excited to tell you that Data Futurology has established a partnership with She Loves Data and we're doing a series dedicated on improving diversity in your organization, in your teams, in your workplace, so you can get the most value out of your teams, out of your data and create products that the market really wants. Tune in every week as we speak with executives and female leaders from all over the world on how they have targeted and improved the diversity on their teams. And you can find out what we can learn from them. We are thrilled as a She Loves Data to be part of the Tough Futurology podcast, where we will showcase some female leaders, but the leaders from tech industry. And we will be talking about strategies, about data, about biases, and about diversity. Join us. I wanted to say a big thank you to our sponsors. One of our sponsors is Shine Solutions Group. Shine Solution Group is a technology consultancy that has been empowering their enterprise and government partners with pragmatic technology solutions for over 20 years. Learn more at shinesolutions.com. Also a big thank you to SAS, giving you the power to know. Through innovative software and services, SAS empowers and inspires data advocates around the world to transform data into intelligence. Committed to diversity, did you know about the Women in Analytics Network that they have? It's a SaaS-sponsored networking program aimed to strengthen diversity in the analytics field. Check it out in the show notes below. They're definitely committed to it as they're helping us with this diversity series too. I also would like to tell you about Growing Data. Growing Data is a consultancy that helps organizations unlock the full potential of their data. They work with some of Australia's most successful organizations from finance. They work with people like ANZ Bank, through to biotechnology companies like CSL, and all the way to construction, working with companies like Metricon. They help these and many more companies solve their most challenging data-related problems in analytics, machine learning, data engineering, and data governance. While I was at ANZ Bank, I got the pleasure to work with the team at Growing Data, and I can tell you for a fact, they are top-notch. I highly recommend Growing Data. Find out more at growingdata.com.au. Also, a big thank you to Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading data specialist recruitment business. They are experts in recruitment strategy and delivery for analytics and data teams. They are the go-to recruitment business for all your data roles in Australia, and they can help both with permanent hires and short-term project-focused data resources. I've used Talent Insights in the past, and I've always found them fantastic to work with. Visit them at talentinsights.com.au. Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. Thank you for joining us on another episode of our special diversity series called She Leads. We've partnered with She Loves Data for this series. We're so excited to bring you this in partnership. It's been such an interesting series of discussions across all different topics. We always have a co-host from She Loves Data. Today, we have the She Loves Data co-founder, CMO of Mero, Pavel Bolowski. Mate, how are you going today? Great. I've been looking forward to this. It's been, it's been the series is going really well. I've been getting great feedback, and these conversations for me are interesting. So, so always great to be back. Oh, same here. I've been loving these. And today, our special guest is Disha Goenka. Disha spent 
uh, about nine or 10 years at Google and now has spent about six or seven years at Twitter. She's the marketing director for Asia Pacific. Disha, how are you doing today? Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm doing great. Thank you so much. I wanted to uh, kick us off by asking you uh, about your, your background and your origin story. <laughs> how, how was it that you got to where you are today? How was um, your journey? And, and did you find that you were taking different turns uh, through your professional career? Uh, and if so, what were some of those, those episodes uh, throughout, throughout your journey? So I grew up in Southern India and I actually come from a family of entrepreneurs. So I think my story is anything but linear. So it's totally non-linear and full of pivots. Um, I think the reason for that is I'm endlessly curious and um, I was always wanting to explore the world. So I've been very fortunate to have had career chapters um, with Google, for example, in India, in the US, Australia, Brazil, and now in Singapore, uh, where I've been with Twitter for the last six years, as you mentioned. I think this entire experience really helped me gain a very diverse and international outlook. I never wanted to do just marketing when I started out my career. I always seeked out roles that appealed to my commercial, analytical, and also my creative side. So I spent a significant portion of my career in sales operations, product management, and product marketing um, because it helped me understand and it took me to the close to um, to the end customer, as I would say, and also to engineers who really built the product. And this has helped me in good stead in terms of understanding the overall business. But I took a step back maybe about like six, seven years ago in terms of figuring out where do I want to spend the rest of my career? And I realized that through the years, the roles I enjoyed most involved data and involved marketing. So creating marketing strategies and campaigns purely for customer delight at its core is my happy place. Um, and I truly am so glad and fortunate that I've been able to build a career in this space. That's amazing. Um, that's amazing. And, and, and not, not enough people um, go, not enough people take a step back um, sometimes in their career to see what they really enjoy. And um, sometimes we get so consumed in the execution and, and doing a really good work on a day-to-day -day basis that uh, taking that step back and that broader view is, is I think a key part of designing the career that you, that you, that you love and having the life that you want. Uh, so that's, that's amazing um, that, that you did that and, and that it's taking you where you are today. Um, no, incredible. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Tisha, I'm, I'm, I'm curious here. Um, kind of your entire career as I can, so as far as I can tell, kind of evolves around marketing, but you, you you've covered multiple disciplines. But I think the, the businesses that you work for are, are very focused on, on marketing. So I'm, I'm kind of uh, uh, curious, how, how do you see uh, someone uh, embarking on, on that career, uh, whether that's more data-oriented role or more marketing-oriented role in you know, 2021, uh, where... Where should people focus on? Like, what's 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 the skill set to to build? Because I think even in our lifetime in in, in this business, we have seen dramatic shift. And I'm, I'm sort of curious, what's what what do you consider like a future proof skill set for for a future CMO or um, sort of a marketing manager director type of uh, specialty? See, you know, I pride myself at being a, a fast learner. If I have to give an advice to like, even like myself or anyone who's embarking on this journey, I would say that 
marketing and technology world and the tech industry is moving at a dramatic pace and it's honestly moving at a pace faster than any of us ever predicted so keeping ourselves um really like up to date i would say requires structured learning and working and even today i feel like whether you're a cmo today or you're a marketing manager you have to make sure that there's a disciplined effort in learning the new tech that is coming as we move along and that is the one thing that will be critical for marketing professionals to succeed going forward the other i would say advice i would give for any young marketing professionals who are studying for marketing right now is looking back at my experience i do feel like spending some time in sales to try and understand the mm-hmm. end customer and figuring out what do they really care about and also on the product side to understand how engineering for example makes product decisions truly believe i truly believe it makes you a better marketer um and whether you can do that through rotation programs or even maybe spend a year or two in these roles um i feel is again going to be super critical from understanding the business as a whole that's amazing essentially essentially it's a, the broadness of the experience not just the actual you become a good Absolutely. marketer by by not being just marketers with your saying correct yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. interesting okay. I I love I love that advice because it's it's definitely widely uh, applicable and and in fact I um when I speak to to data scientists that are looking to broaden their horizons uh sales skills is one of the top things that I that I mentioned that they should mm-hmm. consider and 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 definitely a role either in sales or working closely with sales definitely opens up um their mind into the commercial possibilities of of a particular skill set and um uh, that's uh, so interesting to hear that that in marketing uh you you have the same view um as a, as a continuation of, of that i wanted to ask you about the um the i guess the next stage or what's coming up for for cmos in your views um in the next couple of years in terms of there's there's obviously a lot of market shifts um a lot of a lot of um uh increasing change due to changes in, in digital technology uh what what do you see as the the most important attributes for CMOs in in the digital age uh and and uh, I guess with all the changes that's coming in the next couple of years I would actually while we look at four things um the first one is left and right brain balance um and I don't think a lot of people talk about it enough um especially in the data driven world I think we are now used to most of the conversation is around martech what technology stacks are we looking at how do we actually get better at using data but i which is again like super important but i do feel that cmos need to be both analytical and of course creative and i feel like exceptionally successful cmos who are in the bleeding edge of technology deeply first understand the questions that they're trying to answer can work with data to figure out how to answer it and most importantly how do they use that information and data to bring it to life in a way that is truly emotive and human so i think the left and right brain balance is something that cannot be understated and cannot i, I don't th- i don't see it going away irrespective of how much ai and ml comes into the world uh the second part i would say is um agility and i think this is something that might sound cliche but i i do feel like marketing needs to be more and more agile as technology starts getting more and more complicated as well um i think in a world where customer attention is the currency personalization using tech and data is absolutely critical to ensure that marketing is agile so it can be hyper relevant 
and also so that we can use it in the right time with the right content and also, of course, the right channel. The third thing I would say is around customer centricity and 360 degree customer centricity. Now, this is important for any business. And of course, uh, from a function perspective for marketing, for sure. But I think it's never been more important to build brands with a clear purpose that aligns with your customers' values. And if you look at consumers today and compare them to say like 10 years ago, I think there's been a marked shift in consumer behavior as well. So it's extremely important that we understand our customers a, a lot, lot better to ensure that marketing and everything in terms of communication is completely aligned with values there. The last one I would say, which sounds pretty simple, is being human. Um, you know, I come from B2B marketing and B2B marketing is, uh, I, I would say even like five or 10 years ago, people used to talk about like, um, like one sheeters and PDFs and what does it look like? You know, like that's what B2B marketing is. It's so dry. I think that has changed and it needs to change. I think marketing at the most foundational first principle level needs to be human, whether it's B2B or B2C. It's the only way to develop and sustain a company's approach to business. It's really fascinating how, how many different approaches you can have. And I, I would have seen uh, kind of a CMOs who are that, that you know, one side driven, who are, who are hugely creative, who are all about brand. Then I would have seen others who are performance oriented. They don't care about annoying the customers who are never going to buy from them because they care about, uh, you know, technical things like uh, cost, per, cost per acquisitions. And, and it's, it's very, very detached from uh, any, any type of consumer experience. So I think there's a, there's a huge spectrum. And also, at least what we see uh, in kind of in my home market in, in Southeast Asia is like you have a huge differences in, in maturity with what uh, the big MNCs are bringing in technologically, culturally, um, professionally, and what how local companies, for example, behave. It's it's typically typically super super uh, spread uh, in terms of in terms of maturity. So that, that that's that's a really an interesting point with that left and right brain. I think um, I'm, I'm curious. Let's zoom in on the tech technology piece a little bit and I, I think that's a, a selfish uh, question because that's a that's, that's my background right uh, yeah so we, we've discussed this in in a couple of a uh, couple of episodes before already um, how, how do you think how do you think um, the CMOs are, are particularly adapting to that uh, change in, in technology adoption because we see you know there's stats coming out that that in some non-infrastructure heavy companies CMOs have bigger technological budgets than than IT at some point so uh, they are inevitably getting into a, a very different, very different field, it being data management, security, and, and things that are not necessarily native to, to the sort of the creative brain. So I'm curious how you see that, and especially with your experience working at, at tech companies, essentially. So, See, I, I think marketing, you know, is definitely one of the most um, technology-dependent functions in business today. I think, as you rightly said, the increased use of like first party data, the growing privacy regulations around it, you know, new approaches to data governance. All of this wasn't part of a modern CMO's life even like five years ago, right? So it's definitely critical, um, which I mentioned earlier, to stay on top of the discipline around MarTech today. But again, like going back to what I mentioned, one should not forget that successful marketing is equal parts art and science. While the data can be used for better targeting, segmentation, analytics, and you know what, but this mountain of data is only as good as its appeal to different human behaviors and emotions. 
In my opinion, standout marketing is a combination of a solid brief, genius data analysis, uh, whether it's using a stack or it's using otherwise, and brilliant personalized content. And CMOs today understand it. Um, and they also understand that, again, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach where you can only, for example, have a creative approach to brand marketing and not really think about the bottom of the funnel kind of marketing, which is more performance. So I think it needs to be more holistic. Um, and I don't feel like you can also just do the performance using tech, marketing technologist kind of marketing and forget about the other side as well. That is great. Um, and, and I guess a, a related question with, with uh, um, that increase in dependency on on data and data analysis that that you know is taking is sweeping through so many industries and definitely you know in the case of marketing as you mentioned it is, it is so important um, in in organizations sometimes it comes to a point of making decisions of um, ownership of mm -hmm. of of the data mm -hmm. and of the of the technologies um, and and the, there there's always a bit of a of a debate on on who should drive uh, those, those initiatives within the organizations, uh, whether it should be um, centralized to, to kind of like a chief data science or chief data uh, officer roles, uh, or whether it should be spread out through the business so it can be you know, better, better linked and better targeted to, to what the business needs. Um, what, what are your views on, on who should be custodian of, of the data, um, of the technologies, and, and um, yeah, and what, what is the role of CMOs within that? So I think the way I see it, it's important to draw a distinction between data keepers, as you call it, or like data storage, and the interpretation of data, which I primarily believe sits in marketing. I do think that a CMO and CDO need to fully understand what IT has to offer, for example. And IT may not understand how to accurately translate marketing requirements into technical capabilities. So I think the relationship between these two teams is quite symbiotic. And it needs to be not just at an executive, le executive level where the CMO and CDO are talking about it, but it's not actually funneling down. Because it's critical to ensure that there are no gap knowledge gaps between the teams in practice. So, and so it can help the data and technology team inspire, for example, what's desirable from a marketing perspective and vice versa as well. That makes sense. That's really good. Interesting. Um, so I think uh, let's, let's have a look at uh, another aspect of this, uh, which I think is uh, something we want to discuss also, also as a talent. So if we kind of look at it from, uh, from, um, a, uh, the earlier question was kind of what 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 advice would you be giving yourself or, or someone in, in the role of kind of aspiring kind of marketing leader uh, of a few years back. I'm curious what what do you look for in specifically now when you are building teams and, and growing teams. What, what what type of aspects are are you are you looking for in people? And I, I think uh, where I'm where I'm going with this question is that. Um, I think as a, as a business, is, uh, you know, when we hire uh, for uh, this super fast changing and developing world, I don't think we kind of uh, skill set and experience wise, we can really rely on the mm. traditional educational system because Absolutely. it simply doesn't doesn't catch up with the dynamic changes in the in the 
in the industry, in any industry, mm-hmm. essentially. So, uh, so what what is it that like that you look for in people? What are the aspects? And and I think especially I would love to kind of hear that that relation to that to that um, left right brain that you described because I think that's that's a, that's, a, that's a really curious curious point you made before. Absolutely. So I think I'll break the question into two parts. Um, I'll first talk about like what are the things I value, personally value when I'm hiring and building teams? Um, and then second part, I can probably touch a little bit upon the kind of roles we are looking at in teams today. Um, so the first part, and this is something that I think I've, I've maintained through my career and I really personally value, and I feel like it should go beyond marketing as well. So the first one is diversity and background within a team. I think mm-hmm. you know individuals who hail from different backgrounds naturally obviously come with their own worldviews because of their unique experiences. And this is absolutely critical if the team have teams have to explore creative ways of problem solving and decision making. And I've seen it time again um, in the way that I've built teams and the way we make decisions that this really helps build a stronger team. And I also feel like it is the best way to come up with creative and innovative ideas. The second one, um, which I would say is a little bit more um, harder to, I guess, quantify, but I really believe in will before skill. And I'll tell you why. I strongly believe because of the way the industry is changing around us, whether it's on the tech side or otherwise, organizations need athletes. They need athletes who are highly adaptable and motivated to bring their best selves to work. And this can only happen consistently if one has great attitude. So these are the two things I would say from a talent perspective that I really value. What do you guys think? Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, um, you know, when people when people are wanting to uh, put in the work and they have the right attitude and um, that and they have a, a passion for for what they're chasing, uh, which which is, is what you beautifully summarize as, as the, the will like it. Uh, people are un- unstoppable, and um, I completely agree that the, the diversity is uh, is key in a team. And, and bringing people from these diverse backgrounds, you know, it it takes, m- I, in my experience, it takes a recruit a higher recruitment effort mm-hmm. uh, to to be able to um, reach widely to be able to attract uh, a diverse group of people. I think it's much it's much easier to go to sort of one pool of people where it's very uh, homogeneous and you can get uh, a lot of people sometimes maybe quickly, but they're all very, very similar. Um, so going going broad in order to create that diversity uh, of background and of thought and experience is is much, much harder. You do have to come in with an open mind and and um, and at least I find that you gotta you gotta ask ask and give permission to your teams uh, and your peers to challenge you on on that and um, and sometimes you know sometimes the the lack of diversity comes in in age for example like absolutely that, right like I found myself sometimes building a new team and sometimes there's a lot of a lot of young people and and I had I had um. Uh, one of one of the the managers in my team, uh, and he said to me, he's like, we we need we need people who are not not everyone has to be younger than us, right? Um, we yeah. need to we need to think think broadly. So um, no, I I could not I could not agree more. I think that is that is fantastic. Um, I wanted to to ask you, and I think this is this is the maybe obligatory uh, question of, of 2020 um, about COVID. <laughs> and um, I wanted to ask you about 
about changes and or shifts that you've noticed, um, other in markets, in customers, and employees, uh, shifts that you've noticed during this period, and and if there's anything that you can share about um, how at Twitter uh, there's been any any um, adaptations to these challenges as as the year has progressed. No, I think it's it's absolutely a very important question because I do believe that there are a lot of learnings um, from 2020 as well. Um, so I break it down again into two parts. The first part is let's look at employees. Um, I think Twitter was one of the first companies um, to go to a work from home model in the face of COVID-19 yes. early March this year. Um, and I think we were quite uniquely positioned to respond quickly as well because uh, we have been giving emphasis on decentralization and supporting a distributed workforce mm. way before 2020. So I think that enabled us to respond faster. Um, I think as with everyone else globally as well, um, I, I'm sure the two of you can attest to this, work routines have definitely changed. Um, and they've changed um, across the board, um, irrespective of levels, irrespective of backgrounds. We've seen people adapt to COVID-19 and working from home in various ways. So we've had to pivot as well, right from the way we hire where I think before um, for critical decisions and especially for the last interview stages, we had to fly people to meet their managing, uh, to meet their hiring managers, for example. Um, the way we onboard, I personally have onboarded three to four people during COVID-19 and the experience has been vastly different from how we would do it in person. And that's also been a learning experience. The way we manage our teams, um, I think remote managing, we had to come up with a playbook on how do we upskill managers to remote manage because this is not yes. something that everyone is you know, familiar with. But I think above all else, and this is probably what makes me quite proud of the company as well, um, is we prioritized employee health over everything else. And at the very get-go back in March, we said we have to support everybody at every level, whether it's physical health, whether it's emotional health or mental health. So one initiative in this direction, for example, is like we suspended performance ratings for the year just to make sure that as hard as everyone is working and as stressed as everyone is, we need people to prioritize their own health and mental well-being over everything else. I think it was a very bold and a very courageous decision from a company's perspective. But I do feel like employee um, satisfaction and the way teams have responded to this could not have been better. I think it really shows in the kind of productivity, in the kind of business we've been running in 2020, that that trust in the company to do that um, really helped the company overall. The second bit, I would say, which is probably more to do with the discipline of marketing and consumer behavior, um, I think come March of this year, or actually even like in January, because COVID kind of broke out in China way before everywhere else. Um, it was uh, an interesting point, I think, in all marketers' life, where we kind of had to rethink our whole marketing calendar that took months to prepare, right, in 2019 for 2020. Um, the world kind of shifted around us, and it's been a defining moment for everybody. And this was truly reflected in consumer behavior. Now, what we did, uh, which I think is super interesting, um, is we to look at some of the changes, we looked at millions of conversations around what kind of behaviors have emerged during this time and what kind of behaviors have accelerated. And some of the findings um, I think are intuitive, uh, but it was great to have data to support it, is importance of closer communities. People started talking about how important it is to have communities around them, even if they weren't able to meet family, wherever they are, 
how how can we actually get closer to family if you used to call your mom and dad once a week you started calling them every day for example um so things like that um and of course there were and i'm sure you guys have seen it as well innovative ways of embracing lockdown i think sado baking was a rage for a long time yeah. in covid-19 <laughs> um and then of course i think people kind of went back and thought about their hobbies which i think hasn't happened in a long time like people were so busy working and commuting to work nobody really thought about what do i want to do in my free time um so i think creativity kind of got unleashed some people picked up new hobbies some people went back to hobbies they loved when they were younger um and the last one um which i think i'm sure you both agree with as well is what i call like the rise of the other epidemic which is mental health you know with people being confined and yeah. so there was a lot of conversation around this as well uh, positive as well because people started talking more about it which mm-hmm. is good because awareness is good um so what we did is we looked at all of this data and we've been very open and collaborative um in sharing this data with brands to really help them understand the do's and don'ts um and provided them kind of a playbook on how do you actually reach out to consumers during this time with empathy and with strength because i think a lot of the brands were very apprehensive um yes. about how do i reach out is this the right time to market um so i think this really helped um a lot of the brands and cmos that i work with as well really kind of understand in a very simple way what is the right thing to do and i think the other other bit around marketing which is i i'm sure true with everybody is um on the b2b side we've been very heavy with on the physical events um so we've had to get quite innovative in terms of virtual events and again how do you stand out in a very cluttered virtual event environment because everyone is doing a webinar for example yeah. so what makes your webinar different right so that's been an interesting challenge um and then lastly i feel like 2020 has definitely shown the power of content marketing and it's never been more important than mm. before and i think it's just kind of was accelerated and accentuated in 2020 amazing and did you pick up any any new um hobbies or or skills uh, during this time i i i've started surfing i'm terrible um <laughs> but <laughs> but it was a new one new one for me um how about how are you i actually went back to um to two actually two things that i used to love um one is uh playing tennis which i just kind of stopped great um so i think tennis was one of them and then uh, the other one actually i don't even want to call it a hobby because i think it it's a life skill is reading i just wasn't reading yeah. enough um and i think i made time for reading during covid-19 it kind of became my escape from work um oh. which i hope to continue going into next year as well amazing how about you pavel this this really interesting i've been i've been actually uh, thinking about reading a lot i uh, do i do think i read quite a bit i do publish uh, my reading list every year kind of around january 1st and i've made it a habit for the last 5 years and it's uh, of my everywhere on my any social platform so i i i do it purely selfishly because what i get back in 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 response to that is a lot of the for, for more books so i don't have to do that much of a research but honestly um i haven't read nearly uh, even not even not even anywhere close to 50% of what i read in a, any any normal year this year and i don't know why like i do have the time 
clearly, but I just I just don't understand why I can't get into the books. I I don't have so much focus. Um, I guess it's part of it is because I've been always a uh, uh, heavy consumer of audiobooks, especially when I travel. Ah. So so that, that that's gone. But uh, it's just that that focus, and I can't be on another screen. Uh, it's, I've you know I've had these ambitions of getting on these all, all of these online courses and everything, and it's just like I can't than the idea of being on, on on a screen another hour at night uh, it's just it's just too much during the day so it's, it's i'm desperately trying to do to do uh, kind of something something offline and then my my big goal is actually to be two hours off screen a day and that's in, in a lockdown where you can't really leave house that that's that's a very very challenging so that's uh that's been that's been tricky to be honest it's actually very interesting you said that because i think we, i was having this conversation with a few of my friends and they basically people who were not reading before the lockdown, I feel like they kind of picked it up during 2020. But people who were reading a lot, um, actually it's dropped. And um, the correlation actually is exactly what you mentioned. Most people were reading, whether it's a Kindle or an audiobook during commute time. And because the commute time's taken away, because they used to find that focus time just for themselves to read. Um, And now when they're home, there's a lot more going on. There's some distractions, et cetera. They're just not getting that focus time anymore. So it's really interesting. Um, to see that you are uh, that you have uh, you feel the same as well. Yeah, it's it's an interesting time f- f- for sure. I mean, I mean, this year I don't think I've uh, ever learned as much as I've, I have this year. But mm-hmm. I have to say, it, it's not been easy, and I, I think this is something that we should also be uh, generally a little bit more okay with uh, saying out in, in public that, that it's not easy. It's, it's just uh, uh, some people make it, make it sound like it, it is, but uh, yeah, it, it is it's not really. No, um, it's definitely yeah, it's anything um, but easy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing you mentioned uh, in one of the previous questions was uh, changing consumer behavior, and obviously uh, dramatically induced by the pandemic. And kind of stepping aside from that, one of the uh, trends that we uh, we also observe is uh, that, especially in the sort of the I don't want to say bundle it as millennials, but in the sort of the younger generation of 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 uh, consumers and and uh, population generally, especially in the um, I would say in the more sort of mature, saturated and developed markets that we see that uh, it's, it's sort of a desire for like a purpose or, or mission, mission-driven uh, brands. And I, um, I think I would like to hear your perspective on that uh, as uh, from Twitter that has obviously been always having a, a very specific and, and strong voice. And, and also from maybe perspective of your kind of advertisers, because I think tech companies like Twitter are for a lot of people who are, you know, maybe in banking and finance, not necessarily such a, such, such a relatable experience as what, what you do is just a bit different here. So curious how you, how you, how you think about that. I definitely think that the approach to brand as a mission um, really depends on, like you rightly said, the vertical um, and the industry, the companies and the maturity of the company, um, and also like culturally as well, um, where the brand sits. But I'm, I firmly believe that successful brands lead with purpose. And I really think it's not just lip service, uh, but it's proven by data, by many, many actually studies that we've seen. Um, I think we did a recent study at Twitter with Firefish, the numbers lab, and 82% of respondents said that brands should use their position to affect positive change in society. So we always talk about this with advertisers that we work with as well. And I think a lot of the times people ask the question you just asked me, like, how do we go about figuring out um, this very, very important answer? 
Now, there isn't really a, a simple playbook, et cetera. I think it, it really involves um, a lot of work from a company's perspective um, to understand what is the mission they're trying to drive. Uh, but if I have to simplify it, um, I think I will probably put it in like three Ps maybe. So the first one is, I would say, purpose. You know, what is it that actually guides your brand? The second one is people or, you know, like your customers, even your teams for that matter. How are you supporting those most impacted by anything? And lastly, I would say the pledge. How do you plan on actually giving back? It's a very simple structure, but it's very thought-provoking as well when we've had these discussions with brands. And I think what's been interesting is irrespective of whether it's a bank. In fact, if you look at some of the banks in Singapore, uh, a, very, a lot of them, I think um, the Hong Kong bank is one of them who has a very strong biodiversity um, purpose as a brand. So I think it really depends on what is it that guides the values of your company um, to come up with this answer. At Twitter, I think, like you rightly said, we are committed in our mission to serve the public conversation. And we do this by democratizing speech globally, making sure that voices of like all communities are always heard. We amplify perspectives on both sides and we give them a table in terms of the platform and a mic and a stage for all the issues that, are, that matter to them. Now, this is not something that's reflective just from a company mandate perspective. It's reflected in the kind of marketing campaigns we do. Leslie, who is our global CMO, always says that we have to have the consumer voice, and in our case, it's tweets, front and center of our marketing campaigns, showing the real and raw conversations on the platform in the most authentic and credible way. You guys probably have seen some of the recent examples we've done, like for example, the Black Lives Matter conversation um, that happened in the US. Uh, we recently did another one around wearing a mask. And I think all of this front and center, what you see is not a slogan that Twitter wants to drive, but it's basically trying to elevate voices on what the people want. And I think having such a strong mission as a brand um, is something that then fuels down, not just to your employees, it's also something that the consumers then align with and it has a ripple effect across the board. And do you think it's uh, it's uh, inevitable for survival of brands to 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 have a strong mission like that, or or do do you think there's still a room for brands that are, I guess, more um, commodity transactional type? How do you look See, at that across the board? I I don't think I'll make a blanket statement and say that you know if you don't have purpose as a company, you will not be successful because that's not true as well. But I think in order to be um, a company that is if you do have the ambition to scale a certain, to scale your brand a certain way, and if you have the ambition for consistent and longevity, looking at consumer behavior and the way, whether it's millennials or otherwise what people want, I do think it's important whether you're a small SMB mom and pop or you're a big Fortune 500 to have a purpose as a brand. Um, and I've seen that in Singapore as well, whether you, and in Singapore, a lot of, for example, mom and pop stores, including like baking, baking companies and like bakeries, et cetera, have really mushroomed during COVID. Mm -hmm. And there are a few of them who've really stood out because they, the reason they stood out is they were marketing during COVID, talking about supporting the migrant community in Singapore. And this is a small mom and pop shop but they understood the nuance of marketing during COVID-19. What is it that people care about? They all have really small margins, 
but in their every in their small way however they were able to contribute they did talk about that so i don't think it's completely um impossible for a small company to come up with um, a mission overnight i think it does take time but i do think it's important that's really great yeah i i agree especially in in our um in in a noisy marketplace showing being being uh, authentic and sharing what you actually care about is is one of the one of the ways to to stand out um so that the yeah sharing your purpose definitely um helps helps uh provide more visibility and 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 find people find your tribe find people who Absolutely. like yeah and enjoy the same things um I wanted to one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was around um diversity and diversity initiatives. Uh before we we touched on that to to get uh, a a diverse workforce in terms from a recruitment perspective it's it's uh definitely more more effort but definitely worthwhile. And then so this is more around how do we foster that diversity once uh the people are in the company and how do we support them and and make sure that um that um the and that um we we celebrate the diversity that we have and we help, we allow it to foster within the the uh, the company do you have any any um diversity initiatives that you could share with us um any any examples or stories about uh what you you guys have done um in your in your time So at Twitter I think we are on a journey to uh becoming one of the most like was inclusive and diverse tech companies and I think we're headed in the right direction but don't get me wrong we have a lot of work to do and I guess progress can never be fast enough um I think the first thing is we're radically transparent so we can be held accountable on our representation targets so mm-hmm. we have a uh, we remain steadfast in our efforts towards achieving for example a vision for 2025 which is not that far away that our global workforce will be at least 50% women. Nice. And then uh when it comes to like execution and implementation, um I completely agree with you because I feel like people also need to understand that diversity is not something um, a metric that is just to be strived for. It's mm-hmm. an integral part of a successful business. And there are many studies that show how diverse teams etc lead to innovation and higher revenues etc. what we how we do it is we foster the conversation from managers to employee resource groups what i mean by employee resource groups is we have multiple employee resource groups that are dedicated to various diversity and inclusion teams um to give you an example like for example we have a twitter women group that's all to do um with women leadership programs for them we also have one for um the black community which is called blackbirds uh we have one for twitter called twitter able which is for the abled uh for differently abled people in the um in the organization um uh, of course we also have one for the latinx community we have one for the lgbtq community so we have various such um groups formed in the organization it is an okr of the company to make sure that every single employee at twitter is either a member of this group any of these groups um if they align with it or they are an ally and this is something that we track and as managers we really care about um so that is one i think um we spoke about hiring earlier but i think how do you then make sure that uh diverse teams and uh thrive once they join the organization yes. i think one of the things that we are working on is a very fair and transparent talent planning process And this is something that we 
again, I say is a work in progress, but making sure that talent planning and everything around promotions, for example, and who we actually, when we look at ben- bench for teams, et cetera, it's completely radical, it's completely transparent. Um, and we make sure that the right conversations are had. On the marketing side, an interesting uh, thing we've started last year, which I'm super proud of actually, is supplier inclusion and diversity. Now, this is not something that I've seen in many organizations, but we want to make sure that from a marketing perspective, we are working with as many diverse owned businesses as possible. So we've changed our sourcing and procurement processes in a way that we track and measure our relationships with diverse suppliers. And we're always looking to build relationships with companies that give us access to new ones. That is incredible. And I love, I particularly love the the idea of, um, of, having, did you call it delegates? Uh, when, when people uh, affiliate themselves to a community uh, and, and help some ally, ally. I love the idea of the ally. Oh, I think that's, um, yeah, definitely one that, that I personally hadn't heard and, and I love it. And I love it because then um, that, that um, gives you uh, permission to celebrate uh, the, mm-hmm. the diversity of, of other people um, in, in a way that's really, yeah, really inclusive. Uh, I love it. Yeah, but I think I, I think, I think also in order to uh, really be successful, this has to be a long-term, long-term of effort course. that's, that's, that's uh, encoded into the DNA of the, of the business and its, and its mission. So I think that's like really tying up the conversation we had today together really, really nicely. Um, I'm curious, uh, if, if you could maybe uh, we'd be willing to share a bit of an advice. Uh, one of the things I, I've seen, and, and as we, we work dominantly with marketers and in and, and, and the technology space with my company, with Miro, and um, one of the things we are seeing for sure is uh, that there is, uh, let's say, uh, uh, there are changes to, to their budgets uh, in, in this year and, and kind of investments into strategic projects. And, and it's been kind of frozen, it's been, it's been halted, it's been halved. And obviously, marketing budget is always the, the first thing to go, as, as uh, we, we know in the business, because that's, that's, the, that's what, you can, what you, can, you can usually spare without uh, seemingly without feeling it uh, on the company future, even though there's multiple studies that the companies that continue to invest throughout any crisis actually make it out of it uh, you know, in a better position than, than, than when they went into it. So it's an interesting thing, but I'm, I'm curious if in what would be your, your advice to, to CMOs, to, to marketing leaders, um, to, to kind of apply and take home, take to action uh, on, on how can they more, you know, do more with less essentially uh, in, in the time of a, sort of a downturn like, like we have right now? I would say two things, uh, Pablo. I think the first one is... Um, leading by listening and with agility and empathy. And this is both your teams internally and also the customers you want to communicate to is absolutely critical. The second thing I'll say is I think it's increasingly important for marketers to connect their campaigns to business outcomes and not just marketing measurements, which is to do with like, you know, your CPAs and your impressions, et cetera. I think this is especially important in a time when many businesses are facing great financial strain. So focusing on on essentially an ROI and connectedness to the to the balance sheet of the business even even more. So we're not producing pretty pictures, but uh, things that actually work. Yeah, I, I think the more more scrutiny on that can be used even in in a, in the normal times and, and uh, even more so in the times in the times like this, which are which are difficult, uh, admittedly for for a lot of businesses. So thank thank you for that. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think that that is great. And and uh, as a as a follow up question, I wanted to ask you about the um, that sometimes in in a customer journey you need um, to to be exposed to a message uh, or a brand multiple times uh, before sort of pulling the the trigger on a on a purchase decision. And mm-hmm. um, is 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 that uh, is that maybe also a um, a pitfall that sometimes people can uh, can f- fall into the trap of, of maybe thinking too short term in terms of saying if if I'm not getting a sale through this particular interaction then it may not be worth it in in the long term. How how do you think um, people can can balance the um, the the short term gains with with the the longer term benefits that multiple exposures could could bring. So I think, Philippe, we probably need another hour to talk about attribution sure. marketing. Uh, but uh, but I, love I that do. actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair too. <laughs> but it's uh, but I think. See, I, I don't really feel like that's really changed. You know, be it 2020 or not, um, I do feel like the stickiness, especially when it comes to to messaging, you do need to use multiple channels um, and multiple frequencies to make sure that the message actually sticks. And I think this is just going back to the marketing playbook of making sure that your that your campaign and the messaging aligned with it actually flows across the funnel. Um, I recently heard this term, which I actually wasn't, I'm not even sure if it's um, a lexicon that we use um, overall, but you guys can tell me, have you guys heard of brand formance? No. Yeah, no. so somebody has basically come up with a concept which is called branding and performance and kind of mixed it. It talks about the importance of branding um, purely in terms of how it can have a supercharged effect on performance and what that looks like across the customer journey lifecycle. So it is, I I feel like long-term is definitely good. I think my teams and I talk about this a lot, especially when it comes to new messaging and new value propositions. Your brand Mm -hmm. message needs to be in market at least six months before the customer actually kind of digests, this is what this company stands for. Um, If you're in the game of quick installs, let's, for example, take a gaming company for that matter. Uh, But more and more, when I'm speaking to marketers, the conversation is about lifetime value. It's not about that first app um, download only. So I think it it really is something that I think most marketers now are getting better. It's, It's going back to my comment earlier looking at marketing measurements, looking at, okay, I got a CPA of $1 and I had 20,000 downloads. So that's a tick. I think it's much more than that. And marketers are now looking at, okay, even if this particular platform is more expensive, but if my lifetime value is higher, then I should be investing more here. So that's an example of the way how you would approach it. Amazing. Amazing. And and, uh, I was just going to say that that, um, that answer, much like the um, the rest of the the conversation, really shows the the level of, of broad visibility um, that you have this across across multiple industries. Uh, it's uh, it's it's really really impressive. Um, sorry, Pavel, I, I interrupted you. I know it's just just, just a, uh, it's it's an interesting uh, comment to make, but I think also what's what's happening at the same time is that is that the dynamic is that uh, the whole field is is expanding and mm-hmm. you have multiple entities and then you have the walled gardens of advertising where you can't really you know and a, a task like attribution attribution and marketing has been something that's been there um 
since I started here. Like it, it, it's been the discussion, and it's I don't think it's ever going to go away. And uh, I think it's, it's purely because um, you know you would no longer you don't have one way to contact a company and then close the business, whether that's a B two C or B two B. That's that's a, it's a always always multi multi platform and and factor everything in is just a very very hard. Not just a data, but a, a scientific sort of effort. Absolutely. And I think there has to be um, a combination for marketers. And I see that on a small scale, at, at even at business like ours. When I look at look at sort of when I have my my marketing head on, is is uh, yes, we can look at the performance metrics on our you know search campaigns and 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 display ads and programmatic that we are running. But at the same time, um, I have to be very comfortable with knowing that I can't map everything and every single thing because you can't map a conversation that happens in an office from someone who has seen our ad recommended something to your, to your colleague and they or they contacted you to an organic channel. So I think there has to be uh, there has to be equal parts of very very uh, sort of a bird's eye view on on, a, on the entire business and the entire organization, and as well as as kind of a close oversight of individual platforms and looking at how they work. But it has to all work ultimately together. You have to meet somewhere somewhere in the middle. I think that's that's super important because the world in any way is getting a lot more complex than you know, advertising, especially. Could not I could not agree agree more. Um, I I. Have to announce. Unfortunately, we are out of time. <laughs> Obviously, this is such an interesting discussion. Um, we could we could definitely keep keep going, but I am going to be respectful of of everyone's time. And Disha, I want to thank you so much uh, for the time that you spent with us today, uh, sharing your perspectives, uh, your knowledge, your background, uh, your experience. It, it's been uh, extremely extremely enlightening. Uh, so thank you, thank you so much for that. Um, and Pavel, always a pleasure. I, I've been loving this um, this uh, diversity series that, that we've embarked on together. And um, yeah, I can't believe this is you know episode eleven. Uh, it's been so much fun. And thank you, thank you both so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Felipe and Pavel. I think it's been an absolute honor to speak to you guys, and and really fun. I mean, we should do it again.